Growing up, when did art begin to matter to you? I really didn't um, know much about, you know, art or the process of expressing oneself creatively. But one day I was in second grade and I went to after school daycare, right? And there was a rock painting contest. And so we were told to go get a rock and, and paint the rock. So I got a rock and I took the rock home and I just looked at it. And then the next day I went out and got some paint with my grandma and I painted this rock. And um, I turned it into the rock painting competition and I won. <laughs> And um, I think um, grew up in a really dysfunctional home, right? Where it wasn't common to be praised. You know, it wasn't commonplace to um, be applauded for something. And when I won and I got called up, everyone was clapping. I'm like, what is, what is this? Why are, they, why are all these people staring at me and why are they clapping? And I realized that, oh, people like art. <laughs> people like art. And then the next year, um, there was an origami contest at the public library. And I entered that. And I did an origami sculpture of six ducks. And I won. And when they announced me as the winner, I went up again. And the same thing, people were clapping and smiling. And I'm saying to myself, why are people looking at me? Why are people smiling? Why are people clapping? And I wrote, oh, people like art. <laughs> and that's when I, when I began to understand how much joy art can bring to other people and also to the artist, him, him or herself. So that's when I discovered art. Oh, can I share one more story? Yeah, please do. So, um, as I mentioned, I, I come from a very non-traditional uh, family, kind of dysfunctional, and people... It was a very fractured family, and I really feel like art saved me. Art was my therapy. So, um, and it was challenging for me to find connection with my mother. And uh, one day I came home, uh, it was in fourth grade, and there is my mom sitting on the porch with this hippie artist. This is like um, late 70s, right? And... Um, just like maybe 50 to 60 paintings on the front lawn against the walls. And my mom looked really happy to be sitting on, in the shade on our porch with this hippie artist with all this beautiful artwork. And then I realized this is, so I've had three turning points about art. The first one was the rock painting competition. The second one was the origami. And the third one was I've never seen my mother look so happy. She really likes art. And my mother was prone to, um, I'll just say it, my mother was prone to depression, okay? And um, she had a lot of strife in her life and she wasn't the happiest person. But when I saw her with these 50 or 60 pieces of art and this artist, she looked complete to me. And I think maybe one of the reasons why I really continue to engage in the art is because I know my mother likes art. And I never quite felt 
you know, the mother-son thing. It just was never quite complete for me. And maybe that's, maybe part of my reason for pursuing the arts is because of my own mama trauma, which I, which I own. But it's, it's, it's part of my journey. I don't feel like a victim. So those are the three kind of turning points for me about art and what art means to the artist and to those around him or her. The other thing is, I never put those three things together before. Oh, wow. Until the rock right and the origami and my mother until I got here because you helped me arrive to that place. Oh, wow. See, that's part oh, of your okay. collective that your gift story. that you yeah. can create that space for people to really think openly with that fear of judgment. Because oh, I, never, I never talked about art. I've never been asked that question and I never thought of it in that way. So thank you. Wow, I thought that was like a story of yours that you knew. I've never told that before. I've never even put those dots together. Wow. So I just had a follow up with it. I I just wanted to. Okay. 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 Um, Did you ever find out who the artist was? Like who's like it was this person with the long hair is. No, I um, all I know is his first name was Sam. I asked my mother about it um, at Christmas two years ago. She um, recalls that afternoon when I came home from school. And for some reason, my other brothers and sisters didn't come home that day. It was just me. So, uh, but I don't know who the artist was, but she did buy two pieces of art. One was um, a sun, an image of a sun, but the sun was stretched and it was sort of um, vertically integrated. And of course, me, you know, being kind of love starved, I was thinking, well, maybe she got the sun because I'm the sun. I don't know if that's true. Maybe that's just wishful, wish fantasy. Um, and the other one was um, an image of a boat on a very calm lake. And um, I thought it was interesting that she placed the the painting of the sun very close to my room. And then the image of the lone boat on the empty lake she put in her bedroom. Because she often told me that she felt like, you know that song, Simon and Garfunkel, I'm a rock or I am an island, what is it? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, she, I think that painting was about her need for solitude and, and being alone, but those, they're still up in the house, those two paintings. And I always oh, look at them and have a recall about the moment when my mom was with the artist and when she bought them. So I think maybe in that moment, you know, critically thinking about my mother's choices, the son and the boat. I also think the boat may have had to do with her father, who was, a, a, uh, who was into sailing. Um, I think I started engaging in critical thinking about art that's visual, you know? So I think my mom, my mom really did like artists and she was a little bit easier on me at times when I would excel in the arts. You know, Oscar Wilde says that um, everyone is afraid of their mother. That's what Oscar Wilde said. And in in some sense, I, I think that's true. But um, I'm going through a phase of my life where my mother and I are talking more openly about things and we're finally um, 
common stepping stones upon which we can stand on together and find reconciliation and find understanding. Because I think on our journey, um, we struggle to find connection with others. We struggle to, to love, but we also struggle to be loved by the people that should love us, right? And it's an, it's an, ongoing, it's an ongoing thing, but I think the three moments I talked about actually inform my filmmaking proclivities, if that makes sense. Do you remember one of the first films that you saw that really uh, kind of hooked you in for your love of movies? You know, um, I watched Oliver Twist. I don't like musicals at all. Like, I think, oh, who stops in the middle of preparing a sandwich to <laughs> sing a song? It's like, I have no patience for musicals, but Oliver, so when I grew up, um, we we didn't always we didn't always have enough to eat. Um, but well, well, we did, we did. But you know, we didn't have carton milk. We had instant milk, and my grandmother would bring us, you know, government cheese. Um, my father was very proud, and he refused to accept any form of welfare. Like we qualified for the school lunch tickets, and my my dad said no. No, we're not, we're not, Dad, why Dad? Why not? No, we're not taking money, we don't need it. So I was hungry a lot as a child. And you know, my mother and my father had four kids, um, did not have the college educations. My father had a job, my mother focused on you know, being a mother and raising us. But um, I related to Oliver because he was an orphan. He had no family, right? I had a family, but I felt like I was detached from them. And he, he was hungry for food and for love. And I found a really deep connection with Oliver Twist, especially when he goes up and says, please, sir, I want more. And I said, more? How dare you ask for more food? You're an orphan in this orphanage. And I watched the film over and over again, and I started acting out scenes um, with my twin brother, my little brother, and I started taking photos, I didn't have a video camera. And I think that film, just my connection with the protagonist and his journey to find love and acceptance and a sense of belonging, you know, his need for food was really um, one thing, but the deeper need was to be loved and feel accepted. That inspired me to be a filmmaker. I started making films, but they just were with cameras, you know, camera stills, but I'd piece the photos together and I wrote down what was going on. So I started storyboarding at the age of nine because I saw Oliver Twist. From reading your story, I think you said that the artist, the late artist, formerly known as Prince, yeah. gave you some advice and you had just moved to Hollywood, I guess, and or yeah. LA. So um, I actually love telling this story. So. Um, I moved to Los Angeles before I got accepted to film school. And um, I just figured if I don't get into USC or UCLA or AFI, I'll, you know, go assist a director or get a job at a production company or with the studio. So I, um, the second day I was in LA, I got an internship with a company called Propaganda Films. And on my second day of the job, um, a casting director says, hey, um, What's your name? And I said, Alex. She said, oh, her name is Lisa Fields. And she said, um, would you like to be a stand-in for a famous rock star? I'm like, 
well, who is it? And she said, well, I can't tell you. I said, no, I don't want to be a stand-in because I want to be behind the camera. So I went back to my boss, Stephen Price, and I said, hey, um, Lisa Fields wants me to be a stand-in for a rock star. She won't tell me who it is, and I don't want to do it. And he said, why? I said, because I want to be a director. I don't want to be in front of the camera. I want to be behind the camera. He said, you have to do it. You've never been on a professional film set. So I raced back and she was on the phone ready to hire somebody. I said, I'll do it, I'll do it. She said, okay. So the next day I'm on the set and the DP says, okay, Alex, you can leave now. And I turn around and I'm face to face with Prince. And I'm like, I really wasn't a big Prince fan at the time, but I was looking down at him and our noses were like this far apart. I'm like, wow, she got four inch heels on and I'm taller than you. And he just laughed and he goes, can we uh, switch places? And I said, sure. So um, anyway, we were told not to talk to Prince. They said, do not talk to him. But he would talk to me. And on day six, I got my letter of acceptance from USC. And um, my roommate got the letter and she said, I have something really important to give you. I said, okay, well, I'm in downtown LA and I'm on this music video shoot, can you bring it? So she gave me the letter, I opened it up and I went into the set and I said, I was really excited. I said, I got into USC film school and everyone started clapping. And Prince said, <laughs> I'm like, what? <laughs> he goes, come here. I'm like, well, what did I do? So he said, um, so you're going to be a filmmaker? I said, yes. He said, let me hear you say that. I said, say what? He said, let me hear you say you're going to be a filmmaker. And I said, I'm going to be a filmmaker. And he said, I want you to listen closely. There are four rules I want you to consider abiding by if you are going to pursue filmmaking in this town. I said, okay. So he said, first one, always, he pointed up, always remember God, the creator. Always remember God and your creator. Number two, always remember where you come from. Because when you forget where you come from, you die as an artist. And then number three was um, break the rules. If you follow the rules, you're going to be boring and you're going to fade fast. And number four was always give back. You must give back as an artist. And I said, okay. And he said, repeat, repeat what I said. And I did. I call these my four purple cornerstones. Remember God, where you come from. Um, never forget uh, where you come from. I'm sorry, let me start over. I will always remember the four, I call them my four purple cornerstones. Remember God and the Creator. Never forget where you come from. Break the rules and always, always give back. And he said, grace is really important in your journey. So after he tested me on the four you know, core principles, he told me. He told Rosie Gaines, his backup singer, he said, Rosie, pray for this brother that he does not go down the dark path. He needs to stay on the path of light. So Rosie Gaines took my hands, placed them on Prince's piano, and pray, made a prayer of protection that I wouldn't be seduced by the dark side, you know, or the what Prince called the fleshly temptations. And, she said, this is serious. We are praying for you. And after she prayed, Prince said, amen. Wow. And he said, don't forget what I told you. I said, I, I won't. So imagine that is 
a priceless encounter that cannot be measured. I just moved to LA. I just I finished my undergraduate work at Santa Barbara. For him to take the time to tell me these things and share with me his four core principles and for him to ask his backup singer Rosie Gaines to pray for me. I never forget this and one of the reasons why when I decided to move forward with making FYI films a nonprofit, I rummaged through my mind. I remember Prince saying, always give back. And he helped me. I don't think I'd be talking about FYI films if Prince didn't tell me this about giving back. Because it seems like all four things you've incorporated, the purple cornerstones. It sounds I, like that's all. I tried to. And then the second part of the story is, so when Prince died, right, they did a tribute concert for him. And uh, I called the organizers and I said, hi, um, my name is Alex Munoz. And Prince gave me some really good advice back in the day. I, I will do anything. I will sweep the streets. I will sell popcorn. I will sell hot dogs. I will be an usher. I'll do security. I just want to, in my own way, pay tribute to this great artist because he, helped, he gave me some advice that I'll never, ever forget. So they said, we'll call you right back. And what happened was Two hours later, they called back and they said, we Googled you and you're a filmmaker. Why don't you do a film celebrating Prince? And I said, well, the concert's 10 days away. I can't possibly make a good enough film. And I said, how about if I document it? So I went to document this Prince tribute concert. And um, the very first interview I did is, is happened to be in the same exact spot when Prince told me the four purple cornerstones. It was like, oh my God, this is where... Prince told me to remember God, remember where you come from, break the rules and always give back. And I felt really inspired. Like my body was like trembling because I was, you could feel his presence in that area. It was the concert where I was right in front of LA City Hall, which is where they shot the video. How uncanny is that? Then, um, I went out to the audience and interviewed some people about the concert and Stevie Wonder does this amazing rendition of Purple Rain. So I'm trying to get backstage to interview Stevie and I can't get to him. And the guards are saying, you can't talk to Stevie. He doesn't want to be bothered. So one of my FY film alumni from Hawaii, Adrian Kelly sees me and says, hey, um, Alex, what are you doing here? And I said, oh, I think I told you when I taught FY films, that when I taught the film workshop that my first experience on a film set was being Princess Diana. He said, yeah, yeah, but what are you doing here? I said, I'm doing a documentary. He said, well, why do you look mad? I said, because Stevie gave the best performance and I want to interview him and they won't let me get backstage. And he said, oh, I could help you. And I said, Adrian, that's really nice of you, but you can't help me. He said, Alex, I could help you. He goes in the back, comes back and he says, come on, takes me to Stevie Wonder. Stevie Wonder's nephew. Oh, wow. So I felt like it was full circle. So, I mean, I got like chicken skin right now because Prince tells me the importance of giving back. I'm there to do a documentary about this concert. I can't get to Stevie. Turns out one of my alumni never told me he was Stevie Wonder's nephew. Gets me backstage because I believe I had access to Stevie and all of Prince's backup singers and all of Prince's backup dancers because if I didn't teach that FYI film workshop in Hawaii, I would have met Adrian. And then two years later, I see Adrian at this concert and he gets me backstage. That's karma. That is, oh, I'm doing what I'm supposed to be doing. 
And I told Adrian, I said, why didn't you ever tell me you were Stevie Wonder's nephew? He said, I don't know, you know, Munoz, I don't want people, my family, we don't want people to like us just because we're related to Stevie. So we just, but, but you earned it because you've come to our birthday parties and our 4th of July parties and you never asked any questions and you showed us love anyway. So, okay, now you know. So, I mean, what a, what a blessing, right? That oh my gosh, one of my story. alumni is Stevie Wonder's nephew. And little did I know that two and a half years later, I would need him to complete my doc. Right. And you're in the same spot where yeah. you first met Prince. So yes. it was a music video back yes. in the day yes. in front of LA City Hall. Yeah. Wow. So my, my doc is called um, Purple Dots. And it's short. It's just about how I moved to LA and Prince gave me this advice. And then how... Um, you know, 18 years later, I'm doing this documentary at, at his tribute concert and how my first interview was in the same spot where I met him and how turns out one of my alumni is Stevie Wonder's nephew and then I can do get the interviews I need. That's its own movie. Yeah. That's the second part of it. Mm -hmm. Wow. I have a feeling like a lot of stuff like that happens to you, though. Is that true that you just have like these amazing synchronicities or maybe I'm, I'm wrong. I don't know. I just feel like you have a lot of that that happens to you. Yeah, I think I, um, I, people, I often share this stuff with people where I put it on my blog and people say, why does all this magical stuff happen to you? I don't think anything, I don't think I see or, or witness magic more than anybody else, but I do pay attention. And um, I think I have a, a, a heightened sense of awareness because where I grew up, I had to really be aware of what was going on, who's going to act out, who's going to become angry, who is going to go hostile. And because of that, I'm, I really pay attention. Also, writers and directors have to have super sharp observational skills. So I just, I pay attention, but I don't think I'm anyone special or I don't have the creator's favor. It's just that I, I do pay attention. And they always say with intuition, like we all have it. I think some people have it more developed, even though right. we all have that ability. It just right, just from being super aware, hyper aware of surroundings and someone's mood, or what you know, what will somebody be a danger or whatever. Right. Yeah. Wow, that's. But I, I don't even know how. I never would have imagined that one of my alumni would help me make a better documentary film. And I was, I met him because I was giving back because Prince told me, asked, asked me to. Prince challenged me to give back and I did. And as a result, I have a better doc about him. Right, and then that person, it, it came full circle. Yeah. That's a powerful story. Yeah. Wow. FYI, Films by Youth Inside. That is your nonprofit? Yes. Do you remember the day that you not just, you know, apply for the, the nonprofit status, but that you actually came up with the idea to do it. Um, yeah, I wish I could say, yeah, I had this great idea to teach filmmaking to incarcerated youth, but it actually was um, a result of, as a consequence of my, my um, encounter with a group of um, community activists. Uh, when I did my first movie about the LA riots, for Showtime, which investigated the civil unrest following the Rodney King verdict, um, we screened the film at First Amy Church. And leaders from the Latino community, Korean American community, um, African American community, and also LAPD people were there um, to have a panel discussion. And the screening was shut down by a group of about 20, 22 
young black activist who said, um, F Hollywood, you guys don't offer any jobs training or workforce development. We have all these young brothers and sisters who want to get in. You just come in here and make your films and don't talk to us. What needs to happen for our people from our community to enter your industry? And they shut the screening down for two hours wow. and a lot of producers left. They said, you are discriminated against people of color and people from disadvantaged communities. This is BS. We want answers now. So um, it was good that the producers heard this. It was important. And um, finally, Reverend Cecil Murray said, let's, let's show the film and let's talk more after. And I went up to these um, young activists and I said, hey, um, I don't think it's fair to depict all Hollywood filmmakers as uncaring. I'm interested in doing what I can. They said, well, prove it. And I said, well, how do you want me to prove it? And they said, go to Herman G. Stark, where they incarcerate the most violent youth offenders and tell them about your journey. Tell them about um, what, what you do, that you went to USC, that you're a professional filmmaker, be a role model to them. So two weeks later, I go to Herman G. Stark and um, I'm given a unisac, which is this round device. It looks like a pager. And they said, if you feel in danger, pull the pin and within 10 seconds, the SWAT team will enter your room. And I'm thinking, oh my God, what did I get myself into? So I'm in this room full of 35 young men, mostly Latino and black, covered with tattoos, ankles cuffed, um, a lot of sadness in their eyes, a lot of um, depression and um, dim, dimness, you know? And um, I start talking to them and about an hour and a half into my presentation, I leave the room to use the restroom and I had set my favorite pair of Maui Jim sunglasses on the chalkboard for like $250 and my favorite pair of sunglasses. So I came back into the room and they were gone. And so I just figured I'll talk about this before I leave. So at the end of the three hour presentation, I said, hey guys, um, I came in here with my favorite pair of sunglasses and I drove all the way out here. It took like an hour and 20 minutes. I, I liked them back but I won't tell anybody what happened. No one's gonna get in trouble. So I'm gonna leave the room. You guys talk amongst yourselves and I'll come back two minutes and let's try to find a resolution. So I left the room, went into the hallway, got a glass of water, just had quiet time. And then I came back and I said, okay, so um, can someone tell me where my sunglasses are? And a black and Latino youth stood up and said, Mr. Munoz, we know where your glasses are and you can have them back under one condition. And I said, what's that? And I said, if you promise to come back and teach us more about filmmaking. And I said, well, that's not the way the real world works. You don't hold things for ransom to get what you want. But I understand what you're saying. You're basically saying that you really, really want to learn more about filmmaking. That would have worked with me if you just would have said, Munoz, we really, really want to learn more about filmmaking. Please come back. This wasn't necessary, but I'm not going to hold it against you. Give me my glasses back. So they gave them back. And on the way home, I realized that this is a population that is very underserved and demonized and criminalized and neglected and misunderstood. And that's when I decided to continue my work because of the 20 to 25 young black activists who disrupted the screening at First Amy Church and the black and Latino youth who took my glasses and said, you can have them back if you promise to come back. Without those, those two events, I wouldn't be talking to you about FY Films. So this was in 92 or this 90? was in, no, this was 90, 
This was actually 2000, 2001, 2001. 2001. The riots were in 1992, but the film came out years later. Ah, so, oh, okay. And so in 2001, then that's where it was showing at this church? Yes. Oh, interesting. Okay. But so, you know, when people, that's why to me, like community activists and grassroots organizers, they, they're the ones that inspired me to do this. They led me to this place. I wish I could say, yeah, I had this great idea, but it just happened. I stumbled into it because of community activists. And I feel like the Black and Latino ward were also activists for their, for their fellow students saying, we want more arts programming because there was none going on at Herman G. Stark at that time. And so how were you able to get it approved to, to be able to go in there? Like, did you come up with, a, did they say, okay, come up with sort of a curriculum? If you want yes, to come back? Okay. I, had to, I had to create a curriculum and, you know, I obviously, I, I, I based it off of my first semester of, of USC film school, but these youth are subliterate. They write and read at about the fifth or sixth grade level. So I realized I had to take a different approach to how I taught filmmaking. They're also um, bored with the stagnant grammar of mainstream cinema. They don't like the formality of it. And they really resent how, how um, people of color are misrepresented. They demand authenticity. So I had to come up with a, with a curriculum that was uh, commensurate with um, the academic capacities of this population. And then I had to do all these background checks. And then I did workshops for like another three years and then decided to make it into a full-fledged nonprofit. And so I have so many questions. Um, what were some of the first things you either wanted to discuss? Let's say the first day of a program with new, new youth these are all incarcerated youth, right? This right. isn't, okay, so they're all incarcerated and how long are most of their terms? Are they until they're adults or? Yeah, well, it depends. So it usually um, in LA County probation, um, it ranges from six to 11 months. Oh, okay. And we, are, we have to do when we pick the, the staff at the correction facilities help us identify and locate the right youth. Because if we have a youth, we have to make sure that they're going to be there for the whole two weeks while we make the film. And then the other thing I, I always talk to the, the leadership about at the, at the correctional facilities is, I always say, don't send me all the good kids, the kids who are like straight A students and are doing well, send me the bad kids because they're the ones that benefit the most. And the first two days, it's, it's usually rocky um, with the kids who are like, you know, have, are more reckless and, you know, the, the troubled kids but they end up being the best students. So we not only want to impact the students who are behaving well while they're incarcerated, but the kids who society gives up on, because I don't think we should ever give up on people. That's interesting. Why do you think the quote unquote worst kids are the best students in the end? I think, I think children and, and youth even adults act out more and act more recklessly when they don't feel loved. I would say that most of the students I have who um, have really had bad behavior problems don't have any sense of love or, or sense of belonging. Um, I wanted to just share this with you, not to be a downer, but um, I've been working with this population for like 18 years and have had FYI for since for about 14 years. And 
in the last year and a half, we, we lost three alumni. We lost three students. Um, one student uh, ended his life um, by ODing because he had no hope. Um, another student ended his life on the day he turned 14 because he had no hope. And um, another student um, was deported to uh, Guadalajara, Mexico. And I, I got really down about it. I'm thinking, why, why is this happening? Like, why, why did we lose three students in a matter of a year and a half? Like, what could we be doing better? Like, I started blaming myself. Like, I, I should have done more, I should have done more. So I found out about um, two of the students. Um, I'm using fictionalized names because I can't use real names. Uh, Ricardo and Andrew. I was really upset about them. And then the student who got deported, I call him Jose. He, he called me, he found me on Facebook and he called me on Facebook. And he said, this is in a moment when I reached the nadir of my despair, I was really upset about losing alumni. And he said, hey Munoz, I'm calling you from Guadalajara, Mexico. My family got deported. I said, I'm really sorry to hear that. He said, no but there's a good part of the story. I said, what's that? He said, one of my best memories of being incarcerated at Camp Gonzalez was taking your film class. I'm teaching filmmaking to incarcerated youth in Guadalajara. Oh, wow. That turned everything around for me. Because see, we learned that when we touch people's lives, that gives them the ability to touch other lives. So that lifted me. So one of my alumni lifted me out of my dark hole I fell into when I found out about it students. So, so the last film we did, I talked about these three students to my last group of students and we decided to, they decided to dedicate this film to the three students we lost. It's in memory of them. And guess what the film is about? It's about vanishing. It's about people disappearing. So um, it's deep, you know, but, but um, sometimes there's tragedy in life and sometimes there's pain and sometimes there's suffering and you learn and you grow from those things. And although I will miss, you know, Ricardo and Andrew and my, I still am grieving them. Um, I'm more inspired to work harder to help these young people get on a, a better path. And these people all had these things happen, the, the two that ended their lives after they got out of the camp? Yeah, years after, yeah. And um, the interesting story, the, the, the young man who was with us at Afterball, um, I was showing his film to the last um, group of students I had at Afterball uh, last fall. And one of my students fell out of his chair and started screaming. I'm like, what's oh. wrong? And he said, the actor in the film, that's my cousin. I haven't seen him since he died. And I'm like, what? He said, that's my cousin. And I said, okay, do I need to stop the film? He said, no, I'm so happy to see my cousin, happy. This means so much to me to see my cousin that he did something and he was a really good actor in this film. It was called Regret. It's about how we make decisions that we regret, but we learn from it. And so I ended up talking to the student's mother who was the aunt of the young man who killed himself. And I let her know that her son really shined in this film. So the next week I went to the family's home 
and screen this film for them. They never knew that he was in the film class. They never knew he could act. And the screening became this moment of celebration because they were so proud of him for, for like learning all these lines and carrying the film. So this film ended up giving everyone in his circle of friends and family closure. And they loved the film. They didn't know he was in it. No. Wow. That's what I'm saying. All these moments that they just kind of like, they're like these magical, like, it's almost like a higher hand is like orchestrating it. Yeah, it is. And I learned that, hey, from now on, when I screen films, I have to say, hey, we're screening a film from people who were here two years ago. If you know anyone, let me know if it's, because I don't, you know, with traumatized individuals, you can't, one trigger will get them back on the path of trauma, or we cannot re-traumatize people who are traumatized. And I didn't know what was going on when, when this young man fell out of his chair and was screaming, but he was screaming with joy because he saw his cousin kicking ass as an actor and carrying this film and looking happy. And it, wow. the film ended up becoming a healing element for the family. And they watched the film four or five times. And we ate, we ate dinner and we held hands and we prayed. And I just realized these films are not just important in terms of informing lawmakers when they come up with policy for use of disadvantaged communities. They also affect the individual filmmaker and their families. I know off camera you were talking about how you didn't want to blame, and I really like that because I know it's easy to get in that mode when something's not right and you want to change it. Can you just touch on briefly um, about your screening? I know you had a screening, you had a film that you did. Right. And I, I know you, you want to stay positive, but I, I just thought it was important if you don't mind talking about it. Yeah, uh, of course. Um, thank you for leading me here because I think this is an important story. Um, so um, in this last workshop I did with 16 incarcerated youth at Camp Afterball, um, on the first day, the Latino youth expressed a lot of fear and concern about immigration policy and about um, families being torn apart at the border and about families being uh, you know, abducted by ICE and deported. And it was very emotional for the Latino youth. And then the black youth were talking about how upset they were that black people were being arrested from Starbucks for having a business meeting or being, or having someone call the cops on them because they were having a barbecue at a park, like what happened on Lake Merritt in Oakland. Someone called the cops on a black um, couple having a barbecue. And they seemed to have a profound sense of hopelessness about their future. So in this film, they decided to address the ambivalent space between visibility and invisibility and about vanishing, people disappearing. So I thought that was really deep. And um, this film we made was political. Um, and there's a character they came up with called Zoo, and he represents the future. And in the film, Zoo takes all the people forgotten by history and society and takes them to a better place for healing where there's no prejudice, there's no discrimination, there's equality, there's peace and love and happiness. So they came up with this fantasy place like Nirvana 
So in the film, this character named Zeus says, let us go to the promised land and all the black lands, you know, you follow them. So what happened was um, they're having some issue right now with um, violence in the youth correctional facilities and some of the violence is between the youth and staff. And some people perceive the film as a message of overthrow. And they felt that the message of the film might be and still might cause more unrest. Um, but they, one person from LA County felt that the, the shaman character who, who comes from the future was leading the youth to a terrorist camp to take over. That wasn't their intention at all. But what ha what's happening right now is there's a big um, battle between folks who want to go away from mass incarceration and go towards diversion. Diversion is when a youth is arrested. Instead of going to being locked up, they meet with a guardian and a community leader and someone from the county and say, hey, instead of being incarcerated, you're going to go take this FOI film class. Are you going to take this Shakespearean class? Are you going to take a writing class? But then there's another part of LA County that totally wants mass incarceration because they want to keep their jobs. So we just happen to be caught up in the middle of this incredible storm. There's a lot of changes going on. Um, but it, it was, I've never had a film screening canceled. I've never had the plug pulled. I, I received a call from um, LA County Probation saying, we'd like to see this film that you're going to screen at Afterball on Saturday. Um, and I said, why? I said, I've never had someone from upper management request to see a film. They said, oh, we just need to see it. So I sent it to them, and uh, four hours later, they said, you're not screening this film. I, I couldn't even go to the camp and show this, the film to the youth. There was some confusion about the legal parameters of can we screen this film. But what was beautiful about it is um, the Mexican-American Legal Defense Fund came forward, NAACP, Urban League of America, the Jewish Defense League, Amnesty International, ACLU, they all came forward and said, we support you in screening the film made by your students who were incarcerated at Camp Afterball. And they want to do this big press conference to protest. I'm like, no, 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 let's let this unfold and we will find resolution. And the film will be screened. It's gonna be screened a lot later than we wanted, but I'm currently working to get the film cleared so that it does screen, but on the outs, outside of the corrections. They also were concerned about um, here we had Maxine Waters and possibly Ridley Thomas um, potentially giving introductory remarks in LA Times and some people at upper management were not very comfortable with that. So I, I understand it just was not the right time to screen this film. And um, now if, if they decided at the last minute to not allow us to screen the film on the outs, it's a violation of my students' First Amendment rights. Because even when one is incarcerated, one still has freedom of speech. I don't think it's gonna go there. I really believe, I'm confident and hopeful that we will be able to screen this film in August. But something really beautiful happened. On the last day of filming, um, there was some fighting amongst the youth. Um, about eight or nine youth um, were hurt. Four or five youth were hospitalized. But the 16 students in the film class 
did not get involved. They became impervious to the violence around them because they understood, they were very clear that if they did not finish their film today, there would be no film to screen. So it just shows the power of the arts. And like when you give youth goals, something to focus on, they don't get caught up in all, the, in all that violence. So the next day at the graduation, I told them, I said, hey guys, you know, I just wanted to commend you. We had a graduation. I want to commend you for staying focused. You didn't get caught up in all the violence. And I talked about how does violence affect the individual? How does it affect the, your family? How does it affect your community? And then I brought up the horrible shooting at the Tree of Life Synagogue in Pittsburgh. I said, I want to explain something to you. There was a shooting in a synagogue of innocent people. And I want to bring this up because it happened yesterday on the day we had this outbreak of violence. So we talked about hate crimes and genocide. And I've never seen anything like this happen. I think what I'm about to tell you is probably the most beautiful moment I've ever experienced in working with this population. The youth asked for some butcher paper and felt tip pens and we got it for them and they got on the floor in the gymnasium and drew a sympathy card for the victims of the Tree of Life Synagogue in Pittsburgh. And they made it and it just shows you that when you engage these youth and give them a chance to express themselves and give them a sense of belonging and acceptance and empowerment, they're able to connect with their own capacity for compassion. So these are 16 youth, right? Serving time for, for crimes. Um, they're juvenile offenders, yet they are choosing to write a beautiful sympathy card to victims of a hate crime in Pittsburgh. So we did a doc about this film. It's called From Afflubal to Pittsburgh. And the youth said, Hey, Munoz, can you send this sympathy card to the priest at the synagogue? What is it called? I said, well, they don't have priests in synagogues. Well, the minister said, well, it's not, not a minister, it's, it's a rabbi. I'd explain to them what a rabbi was. And they said, well, send it to the rabbi. So I sent it, I sent it to the rabbi. And he appreciated the gesture. Wow. And um, it, was, it was a beautiful moment. But it, it, if that doesn't show you that the arts can help transform lives and can help young people find their sense of love and compassion and empathy for others. I don't know what is, but that, that was a very profound and meaningful moment and I will never, ever forget it. I'm gonna email you both the card they made. You have it on your Facebook too, right? I yeah. think I, I saw it, yeah. Yeah, know. it's like five by five by four feet and- um, right. There's a lot of hearts and it says, we love you, we're thinking of you. It's so beautiful in its sincerity and very genuine and really having a concern. And they said, well, how many, did, did people die? Yes, people died. Well, are the families okay? I, I don't know, I, I'm not a member of that community, but they told me and my instructors that it was very important for them to make this card to send to the Tree of Life Synagogue. And, Pittsburgh. So the screening may happen in August? Yes, I'm waiting for one more clearance and hopefully we'll do it. I'll make sure to invite you all. Love for you to meet my students who came up with this idea of, of vanishing. And I think what was really hurtful for me um, was it was our first film at LA County Probation Camp in about a year and eight months. 
And the youth decided to, to um, lash around this concept of vanishing and disappearing. And they came up with this idea before they heard about the three youth we lost. Oh, wow. So that was profound to me. And I said, I just want to let you guys know, you don't know this, but we lost three alumni, two transitioned, another one was deported. And for you guys to pick up on that is, a, is your gift. So they dedicated the film to the three young men. And I was upset at probation because I said, do you understand that this is a film about people vanishing? And we've had three alumni vanish. And the youth dedicated this film to those three youth. But that, that is a whole different thing. They, they're thinking about the stability of their department. And I had to step back and realize that I have to be dogged and disciplined and get this thing cleared and screen this. And it's just not going to happen right now. I had to accept that. It was hard for me to accept. I was stressed out. I was calling on my thunders, calling all the political leaders saying, I'm really sorry this happened. And I didn't even understand what was going on, but it was a very stressful week. I imagine how heartbreaking that is. Like you have 16 youth work on this amazing, artistic, profound film. It was tough. That was a tough week for me because I was so proud of my students for really um, addressing why are black people disappearing from Starbucks and parks? Why are Latino families being torn apart? Why are Latinos being abducted and, and deported? This is causing a stress, Munoz. Can we make a film about it? Yes, we can. We did this film. We also dedicated to the three alumni who are no longer with us, and yet they pulled the plug. So it was really, it was really tough, but it's looking better now and I'm very confident we will screen the film. And now the good news is, is that all these venues have offered their space. Oh wow. And now the screening is gonna be even more jam-packed because they heard that the first screening was canceled. But for the youth to see it, that were the 16 filmmakers that made it, that they wouldn't be able to go to these venues, right? Oh, they'll go because they're all out now. Oh, they're all out. See, that's the other oh. good thing because okay. now we can, we'll go around and we'll pick them up and we'll bring them all to the screening. Oh. And we won't have to deal with the restrictive guidelines of probation. Um, and I think probation is kind of backed down. They just, it's a very sensitive time for them right now. There's a lot of um, um, some violence and there's some conflict between the youth and the staff and whether they should use mace or whether they shouldn't use mace and when is diversion gonna happen? What's, how, how are people gonna make money if diversion comes in? There's a lot of confusion and chaos right now and we happen to be smack in the middle of the storm. How did you let the, the students know that the screening was canceled? I called them and they gathered in a small room and I had to tell them over the phone. What was their reaction? They were very upset. And then I, I went again the following week and I was able to screen part of the film for two of the students that were very, very excited about the film. So I did get to screen some select takes um, to two of the students. But the other ones, I just said, hey, we're going to screen the film. You will get to see it. Trust me, I'm working on it. So this screening that happens, hopefully early August will be a beautiful moment of, of solidarity and unity and triumph because, wow, we finally got this film out, you know? And how many screenings have you done total since, like, what, 2001? 
Oh, we've done, it's really difficult to get the films cleared because you have to get the, the courts to sign off and the head judge and probation. But we've done about um, 15, 15 screenings, yeah. Usually they're small. I prefer to screen the films. Um, there's two venues that offered us their theaters, but they have like 300 to 350 seats. And when you get an audience that big, it's really hard to have an intimate, meaningful conversation. So I prefer venues that are like, like maybe under 100. I find that 60 to 70 is usually a good number because then there could be real engagement. And the power of these screenings is yes, the films are great. Yes, it's amazing that the youth write, direct, and perform these films. But the most powerful thing is when they get up and talk about the process of making the film, how they learn things like discipline, um, focus, um, meeting deadlines, working with people um, who are different from them. A lot of my students, they come from rival gangs. And I have to, it's my job to make sure that, hey, we're on the same team right now. So during the Pro Bowl, does someone from the Oakland Raiders hate on someone on the Broncos because they're in different conferences? No, they're in Hawaii to win the Pro Bowl. They're gonna let go of those differences. So I call it the all-star factor. When I break it down that way, they go, oh yeah, that makes sense. And they just let it all go. What is day one like for the workshop, the FYI workshop? What are you going over first? Well, day one, um, my students are like this. Like, who are you? Like, some Hollywood guy trying to tell us <laughs> to make films. And they, hey, we don't want to make Hollywood BS films. Like, we want to make real shit. We don't want to make fake stuff. So they are, they resist me. And they, when I say, we're going to make a film, they do these phobic tilts, like, what? What is he talking about? How are, we, how are we going to make a film? We're locked in here. You're feeding us some BS. I'm like, no. And then I show them films made in the past. And they go, oh, wow. They become open to the possibility that they really can write, direct, and perform in a film while they're there. But um, so the first day is just icebreaker. It's me getting them, me learning to trust them and them learning to trust me. And we talk about stories, for instance, one story, I start out every day with the story of the scorpion and the toad. Do you know that story? No. So, um, and they love this story and we act it out. So there's a toad, right? And he's swimming around, the scorpion comes down and says, hey toad, um, I need to get to the other side of the stream and I, you know I can't swim. He says, please help me. And the toad says, I'm not gonna help you because you're gonna sting me. I know what scorpions are. The scorpion says, no, please, Toad, I need to get to the other side of the stream because my mom's sick and I need to go see my mom and I promise I won't kill you. And Toad says, no way, I've heard about you. You always kill people when you get what you want. And the scorpion says, no, I promise I won't kill you. He says, please, and the scorpion starts crying, I wanna see my mom. So the Toad goes over and says, okay. So the scorpion gets on the Toad's back and they swim over and they get on the other side of the shore. The scorpion stings the Toad, and the toad dies. And I tell the youth, well, what does the story mean? It's an Aesop fable. Oh, you can't trust scandalous people. <laughs> so right, once a liar, always a liar, right? So why do you want to get on the back of somebody you can't trust? Unless you really know them, you should not agree to get on their back. So we, we start acting out. Like we have someone be the toad, someone be the scorpion. Then we include like an eel who says, no, don't. Let him go on your back. So then there's the eagle saying, oh no, do it, do it, you know? And um, so we, we basically explore um, sto storytelling. And um, 
the, the storytelling is very, very, very powerful. So the first day is pretty much about, I, I let them know that they're going to make a film, they don't believe me. So then I show them films made by past youth and they, they're open up to it, but they're still kind of rigid and coiled. But then once we start doing um, these improvisational where they play, I base my teaching on Hoisinga's essay about how important play is for people, especially youth who have been through trauma. Look, if you spend most of your childhood wondering when bullets are gonna come through your window or when is the next drive-by or, or is your mama or your daddy gonna get arrested, there's no time to play. But a guy came into my room once, a guy from the Burns Institute, and he's under, he is researching why are youth of color so overrepresented in California youth correctional facilities? Why are black youth, maybe 11.5% of the California population, yet they represent 52% of the population of incarcerated youth? Why, why is that? So they came into my gymnasium once and they saw black and Latino youth skipping across the floor acting like a melancholic elephant or a joyful leopard or a confused dove or a, a drunk squirrel. <laughs> and you create a space of trustworthiness and where everything that is said within that group is sacred and there's no wrong answer and nothing is wrong. And you create the space and then the magic comes. Then they, they open up. But the first day is really just about icebreakers. Can I, can I share, with you, share with you one story? Please do. Since we were talking earlier about animals and um, in, in my work with, I did a couple of films with the Ute Mountain Ute Tribe, the members of the Ute Mountain Ute Tribe in Colorado. And uh, I had a lot of talks about the relationship between human beings and the animal kingdom. So in this last workshop um, uh, at Camp Affleball, I noticed the kids were like really, really standoffish and really distant and doing a lot of this like, what? No, I can't be, he's not serious, this guy's a fake. And a rattlesnake entered our room and it was all curled up and it was like ready to bite anybody who came near it. And um, uh, one of the kids wanted to kill her. I said, no, 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 don't kill the snake because the snake doesn't understand where, where he's at. He's in a gymnasium in a youth correctional facility. He needs to be in the bushes or on the ground. So we, we worked together and, and took the rattlesnake and put him over the fence so he would get away. And I asked the kids, I said, why do you think that rattlesnake came in? They said, ah, oh, I was confused. I said, well, you are the rattlesnake. And they said, what do you mean? I said, because you guys are all coiled up like this and suspicious of us. I said, I'm not, I'm not criticizing you, I'm just making an observation. I said, I'm coiled up too because I don't know if you're gonna trust me. So we're all coiled up and like rattling, but we're not getting anything done. So can we let the, so then we did an exercise where we were rattlesnakes. And then I said, let's act like really trusting rattlesnakes. And they all stopped rattling. So I thought that sometimes the universe reflects what it is we're going through when we're working with other people. In the middle, on the, the, the midpoint, uh, see Saturday would be day seven, um, a California brown tarantula entered the gymnasium oh. and the kids got scared. I said, hey, it's a California brown tarantula. They will not bite you. They're not venomous. They're, they're harmless. So I picked it up and my instructor Tyson picked it up. I said, look, it's not, 
It looks scary, but it's not. And the kids said, oh, that's just like us. Like a lot of people out there think we're dangerous and we're going to hurt them, but we're not. We just want to have enough to eat and we want to love and be loved. And we're not always dangerous, you know. So that was another example of the universe reflecting what was going on between right. instructors, students. And the last day, this is amazing, the last day, never had this happen. I've never had any animal visitations um, during our workshops, but on the last day, we were filming the last take. And not one, and not two, but three deer come up to the fence and look at us. And I said, cut, cut. And I said, let's look at the deer. It's, what, what are the deer? What are they doing here? I said, I've never had deer come up to me. I've done eight workshops at Afterball. So what do you think? Why are the deer here? Oh, I don't know. They like filmmaking, <laughs> you know? Like, well, there's something <laughs> deeper than that, I think, because animals, we, animals pick up on, they have that sixth sense. And they don't have a lot of the luggage we have as humans. So what, what, what are they saying? And uh, I said, let's look at, in the deer's eyes. And, and one of the kids said, oh, um, they like the fact that we're doing something productive and good. I said, you're right. I said, they're reflecting back on your focus. And when the deer came, two of them left, but one sat down until we finished and just watched us. And wow. it created this um, feeling of, of acceptance and gentleness and empathy because deer are very gentle. So that's something to be noted. And I actually talk about it in the doc, how we had a rattlesnake visit on day one a California brown tarantula visit in the midpoint, and the last day the deer came. And I also feel like the deer helped get the youth to that place to connect with their empathy. Because they said, wow, the deer look really friendly. Like, they look like loving, like they care about us. I'm like, yeah, that's the nature of deer. And it got them to think about the, what, what part of me can be like a deer? How can I be loving or, or sympathetic or be interested in someone else's well-being? But it was the three, I believe it was the three deer that were very instrumental in getting my students to that place. I mean, I've never had animal visitations. I had three, rattlesnake, California, brown tarantula, and deer. You cannot ignore these things. Now, people think I'm kind of out there, but I, no. this, I pay attention to this. Right, right. Again, mm. the synchronicity is these signs. Yep. Whether it's just that you're noticing them and other people don't. I think most people, they're too busy with the phone. They're looking at the latest like celebrity baby news or something or you know political scandal and and to being open to seeing that were you always this empathetic though or was this a, a long process um yeah i've been empathetic but i think working with this population just expanded my capacity for that you know and i also think a life-changing thing for me was doing the two films with the youth mountain you tribe i i um I have a medicine man, his name is Waylon Plentyholes, and um, we were having some really weird stuff happen. We were shooting in a youth shelter, and there was a lot of really dark stuff happening, like people having negative thoughts, people having um, being overcome with anxiety, um, people becoming someone they weren't, people breaking out in hives, and I called my medicine man, and I said, I need you to please help me. And um, he came in and, and did a blessing with the red willow, red willow brook bark and sage. And I, I asked my medicine man, I said, what, what, um, what was going on on that set? I said, it was, there was some negative energy. He said, oh, where you're filming. 
Many youth were abused, many youth committed suicide, and there's a lot of negative energy around here. So you were feeling that. So I had to have the medicine man come and clean up the space every day before he fell. And he taught me a lot about animals and how they communicate with us. And I think that opened my eyes to, I don't know, it, it just helped to expand my awareness, all my conversations with folks from the, the mountain you travel. And the other, since you're talking about synchronicity, my, my Tia, you can use this or not use it, but my Tia, my aunt told me before I went to Colorado three years ago, she said, you're gonna have a hard time. This is gonna be a very challenging thing because life on the res is really tough. It's really, it's really hard for me to talk about because I don't like seeing young people, anyone suffer. So she said, you, you will have an ally. It would be, a, you will have a male ally that will help you overcome the negative forces. And I figured, oh, my ally is Chief Hart. Um, it's definitely the chief because I get along well with him and he's powerful and he has, he's like a shaman. So when this incident happened where we were shooting on the youth shelter, I, I called the medicine man and said, I don't know what to do. There's some weird stuff going on here and I, either have, I can't cancel the shooting. I can't, because we're not gonna finish the film. I need you to please come and help me understand what's going on. So my, my, my Tia said, you have an ally and he will walk in two complete counterclockwise circles with you. And I said, really? She said, yes, that's, you have an ally and you will know who it is when he walks in two complete counterclockwise circles. So when, when Waylon came, we had to sit in a circle and we, we smoked red willow bark and we smoked sage and we had to turn the pipe counterclockwise that we passed it around. Then he said, I need everyone to walk with me in one circle. So we walked in one counterclockwise circle and I said to myself, that's not him. He's not my ally because he's younger than me. You know, he's like 32. It's like, nah, it's not him. It's, it's cheap heart. So um, on the last day of um, my, on my last day in Colorado, I was told that when you ask a medicine man or a medicine woman for help, they can't say no. Even if you are their enemy, they cannot say no. Also, they cannot charge for it. They don't understand mm -hmm. like how in Western culture, you have to charge to see a doctor or charge to see a therapist or charge to see a psychiatrist because they believe that if you have a gift to heal, you heal. You do not charge for it. So I figured, okay, I can't give him money. So I'm going to buy gifts for all his kids. So I went to his house and gave the house kids. They made me a really beautiful lunch. And he said, before you leave, before you head up to the airport, I'd like to show you my, my, my property. And he um, said, let's go. And his wife and three kids left. And um, we walked around the property in a complete counterclockwise circle. And I said, you're my ally. I said, I apologize because I rejected you as my ally because you're younger than me, but you really are a medicine man. And so we're good friends now. I call him for advice sometimes. He's the one who helped me understand the snake and the California brand translate and the deer. So that experience I had with the folks at the Ute Mountain Ute Tribe helped to expand, open my eyes to what's out there. There's another realm out there that we don't know about. You talked earlier about a higher hand. So that really helped me to evolve. Also helped me to evolve as a filmmaker because on that, um, the day before the event at the youth shelter, uh, an, a man from the Apache tribe came up and said, do you know what you are doing with the young Native American youth here? I said, yes. He said, what are you doing? I said, I'm teaching them filmmaking. He said, what else are you doing? 
I said, I'm teaching them storytelling. He said, what else are you doing? I said, I'm empowering them. He said, there's something else you're doing. There's a prophecy with the indigenous people. There's 566 Native American tribes in North America, but all the indigenous tribes from around the world believe that this generation right now, 18 and under, they are the seventh generation. That's the generation that is going to wipe out discrimination, inequality, human suffering. And so he said, when you teach young people, you are preparing the seventh generation to heal the world. And that made me recontextualize my approach to how I teach. So when I went to Afflebaugh, I said, hey, these kids, okay, they made bad decisions, but they are going to be healers walking this earth according to the seventh generation prophecy. You're not hearing a lot about it, but it's coming more into mainstream thinking. A lot of there's new companies called seventh generation. But so to think, rethink my role as not just teacher or film teacher, but nurturing and cultivating and protecting their gifts so that they can go on and make the changes in the world that we want may not happen, but it's going to be their generation. And this is the seventh generation prophecy. In 2016, you interviewed with the site LA Taco. Mm -hmm. I love that site, by the way. And they have a great Instagram. And you said that about Los Angeles, there's a taut tension here, which does not exist in any other city in the world. LA right now is experiencing a burst of radical creativity. Being in the media arts or other genres is an exciting time to be in Los Angeles. Now, this was in 2016. Right. So I'm, I'm wondering what the tension is that doesn't exist in other cities. And then if you can also talk about the creativity. Yeah, it's hard to it's hard to like find um, a name for it. But so, look, I, I work a lot in Berlin. There's a tension there, but it's it's more there's a lid on it, right? New York, there's a tension, um, but there's no there's a feeling to LA that LA offers that no other city has. And I don't when I say taut tension, it's not in a negative way. It's just that there's so many different cultures buttressed up against each other, you know, and we're understanding now that we need to not only coexist and cohabitate, but we need to get along to make our community safer and better and stronger. Um, but also there's a lot of experimentation going on, whether it be at CalArts or Pasadena Arts Center. Um, I just think that the generation of artists, the new generation of artists, they're really bored with everything old and that's been done. And I see a lot of radical um, trailblazers. You drive around LA and you see people making films or painting murals or, or taking photos or doing spoken word out in the public. This, these bursts of creativity, I feel like there's a, something smoldering, smoldering beneath our feet in LA um, because we keep, and even physically, like I live in downtown LA, Every month there's a new business open or a new building or some new construction. It just keeps changing and changing and changing. And I just feel like in LA, it's, it's more like an open frontier, especially in terms of the media arts. The people are taking so many chances and trying new things. Whereas I feel like cities like New York are more like stuck in old school New York, where they believe in the formality of cinema and the formality of arts, where LA, this is where experimentation is going on and I think a lot of it comes from the tension. You drive down Venice Boulevard and you go, you know, you go through a high income neighborhood, then you go through Koreatown, 
Then you go through a low-income neighborhood. Then you see Korean Americans, then Latinos, then African Americans, and then you know more more white folks, and then to the beach where it's really white and uppity. But it's that tension, the the combining of different people from different backgrounds, different cultures, different classes, that creates something really really exciting, you know and. Right now, there's a lot of tension in downtown LA because, and I, I, when I ride down Skid Row, right, I am not able to reconcile what I see with what I was told America was by my parents or grandparents. The suffering young mothers spoon feeding their kids baby food on the curb when it's raining outside? This is, wait, this is not America. I still cannot numb myself to that. But what's going on is LA wants. All the homeless gone by the time the LA Olympics come in 2028. Where are they going to go? Where, so where are they going to go? They're feeling pushed out. They're feeling expendable. And they're feeling unloved. And they're angry. And there's this, there's this really concentrated tension right now in downtown LA. Because the homeless people resent the people who have. Sure. And the haves resent the people who have not because there's some sanitation issues. Sure. But there, there's, there's a real tension in downtown LA where you have the homeless people who have been there for generations and you have this new influx of socially, economically, upwardly mobile people and there's a clash. Mm -hmm. But there's gotta be a way where we, if we can spend $3 billion on a rover to put on Mars, can't we figure out this homeless situation? What, 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 how, do we, how do we make this work? So there's so many, LA's changing every day and that's what causes the tension and there's so many competing needs. Right. But I would rather we look at what do we all have in common? We all wanna love and be loved. We all wanna have a roof over our head. We wanna have enough money to put food on the tables and educate ourselves. Can we focus on those things? But it's, there's a lot of tension right now in downtown LA. I'm actually glad to be in, in the middle of it, but I feel like uh, Werner Herzog, um, he's a director. Yeah, he's great. He wrote an essay on LA and he said, LA is the most exciting place to be and will be the most exciting city to be in the world for the next 50 years because of this experimentation and taking chances. Um, I, j I don't know what it is exactly, I can't pinpoint it, but there's something exciting happening there's this renaissance of new art. It's past postmodern. People are anxious to tell stories their way without being tied into the Hollywood substructure. And there's this new freedom to tell stories our way and make films our way without being tied into the Hollywood studio or Hollywood network system. Because you can shoot a film on a phone now. That the freedom that gives you. You don't have to go to film school and get a, rent a camera and rent and get a grip and a gaff. You can go out and make a film with the phone. That freedom allows a whole new bandwidth of, of cinematic creativity. And I'm really excited by it. Does that answer the question? It does. Did you see the documentary City of Angels? No. It was about homeless, homeless in LA. Um, I heard of that though. I think though. it was narrated by Catherine Keener. Is it Catherine, or Kathleen Keener? Catherine Keener. Uh, it was excellent and it's very sad, but um, just humanized all of them and told their stories, you know, and um, 
yeah, that's all I have to say. But, but see, they, they have their stories too. And here, here's my thing. Um, I, had a, I have a mentor who would say, doesn't um, believe in organized religion, but he, he said, look, this is earth. These are the people, and this is God. We're all connected. My, my feeling is this. So if there's a community um, that's suffering, like let's say the homeless people are really suffering because they're, they're, they're compressing the size of, of um, Skid Row, and the, the population of Skid Row has almost doubled in the last four years. So you have m more people in a smaller space competing for resources. So my argument is this. So, um, so if your hand is cut and you get gangrene, let's say you have a cut and it's infected, it affects your whole body. And you have to treat that hand, otherwise the infection is going to spread. So, so when there's a community that's suffering and is in pain and is not well, it affects all of us. They are part of the family of humanity. So you, some people may not perceive the homeless people and the mentally challenged people as an inconvenience and as unsanitary and as unwelcome, but they're still human beings. And if we don't take care of them, we all suffer. And I'm, I'm concerned because I don't know where these people are going to go when the LA Olympics come. Well I, well, I don't know how true this is, but I heard that during another LA Olympics, they just bust them to outskirts of LA that weren't as populated. Again, it's just a rumor, but um, yeah, I, I don't know what the easy answer is. I mean, I guess the problem is when people say, well, we offer them housing and they don't want it. And I understand because there probably are some pretty strict rules with that. And maybe not everybody's meant to fit into a certain box and right. maybe it's too much for some of them who've been used to being so free. And I guess the, the hard part is, is that you know, the sanitation thing, I mean, I don't know if there's a way to offer just a public restroom. And that I, I realize then who's going to be paid to clean it and, and take care of that. I mean, Santa Monica has a public park that's great. It's clean. Everybody can use it, and they do an amazing job at keeping it clean. Um, but, yeah, I, I, I hear you on that one. It is, it is hard, and I've seen a lot of people, not just homeless but what they call rubber tramps or whatever that, that are in their um you know their rvs and stuff there's a huge community of that i actually think there's a there's a radical opportunity for us to 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 lead them to a place of inclusion and belonging like why couldn't someone come up with an idea where let's hire homeless youth and help them build these new olympic facilities if we're going to create a village for international athletes coming from every country from around the world why couldn't we create a village for formerly homeless people to live in the village and just work on creating venues or, or creating, putting art up around the city for the Olympics? Let's, let's get them involved. Can we get them involved and create um, job opportunities? And while they are working, can we teach them skills that will allow them to become employable after the Olympics leave? You know? That's a good point. But that's another tension because you can't, when you sweep something under the carpet, because LA wants everyone to think there are no homeless people here. Well, guess what? There are. You keep sweeping something under the carpet every day, it becomes this big mound that people just trip over. And it's also a lie. It's, it's facade. It's not, yeah. it's not real. So I'm hoping that the leaders of LA County and the city of LA figure out a way to solve this without 
pushing people out that, that really feel a sense of belonging in LA. I'm really hoping that they will be up for that challenge. Even though you're from the Bay Area, but somehow you've found your belonging here in LA, which is interesting because I'm also from the Bay Area. And I know the Bay Area has a lot of negative thoughts about LA. Mm -hmm. I don't always see it in the reverse. I don't always see Angelinos like, oh, that Bay Area, they're so flighty and yeah. uppity and this and that. Maybe they say they don't, I don't know. I, but I don't see as much of reverse. So I just find it interesting that you've embraced LA even though you're from the Bay Area. Yeah, there's a bad stigma when it comes to people in Hollywood. Like my, my dad came to an event of mine and a, a colleague of mine brought his girlfriend who's an actress and um, um, they were at this party I threw after one of my screenings and my colleague's girlfriend, um, she's very attractive, my dad was taking a picture of her because he just wanted a picture of her because he thought, oh, maybe she's a famous actress. And she looked at him and said, I didn't tell you you could take a photo of me. I'm a SAG actress. Do you have my permission? Where's my release form? Oh, wow. I, you're nobody. You're nobody to me. And so oh. my dad was really upset. And I went up to this woman. I said, you cannot talk to him like that. That's my dad. And she goes, oh, I'm so sorry. I said, you should not talk to anyone like that. And I kicked her out of the party. I said, I don't want people like that who would treat not just my father, but anyone like that. And she went to meet me. But since then, my parents don't want to come back to see my mm -hmm. screenings because of this. This is stuff like this happens, and it gets back to the Bay oh, Area. Oh, sure. You know? Yeah, I mean, we interviewed this couple, um, Mark and Elaine Zakri, and they said there's a good Hollywood and a bad Hollywood. And I think that that's the case. Maybe I think not so a too. lot of gray area, but I think that that's the case. Yeah. And it's trying to find those that are in. The Hollywood that you want to belong to, and so, right. you know, it's different when you're making indie films because you kind of want to think, well, I'm not in Hollywood, but there is an industry sort of personality, and we're all fragile, and we're all like trying to get our message out there, trying to get our work out there, so that creates certain things. I get it, and um, but yeah, that's well, that's that's not a good story. But. Yeah, there is a good and a bad side, but unfortunately, my it really put a really distasteful it was a very bad experience for my dad and they're they're now not interested in coming down when I have a film that comes out I go up there to screen it for them because of that experience well what's interesting is that they you know there's the argument of that Hollywood's morals are bad and the messages that messages that they put out okay I agree with some of the films when they try to do these like positive certain films they might be too squeaky clean for some people to really relate to so I feel like there's not enough of a middle ground with some of the, I, I get why, you know, Hollywood could be branded, not smut peddlers, but I mean, for lack of a better word, okay? Or, or to, to cookie cutter. Um, I guess there's not enough of a middle ground for the, for the, for the positive messages. It seems like yeah. it's too squeaky clean. It's not real. But, but, but I, do, I do have a hard time relating. I'm not saying I'm better than anybody, but I do find difficulty relating to people who are in the industry because they want to be rich or famous. I, I, I want to tell stories and um, I want people to feel something deep and profound. And my other hope is that like in the, in the work I do with incarcerated youth, to see how they shine, like this is a, a, a segment of our population that is so misunderstood. Um, I'm hoping that my films will help contribute to the elevation of a collective human consciousness about, wow, we're really, we're really the same. These kids aren't that bad. I messed up. I believe people 
deserve a second chance. I also believe that forgiveness is, is freedom. And I think people deserve a second chance. What about these kids forgiving themselves, even if it wasn't their fault for something, whether it was just the family they were born into? Do you ever go into that? Yeah, we do. You know, it's interesting because the youth typically make films based on their own personal or immediate history. And when they see scenes from their own personal lives played out on a big screen with an audience of 100 to 200 people and people relating to their story and then getting an applause. Um, I'm not a psychotherapist or psychoanalyst, but by making films about their immediate past, it renders the past unrepeatable. They, they gain perspective, like, oh, why did I do that? Why did I have two babies' mamas? Like, oh, I guess I wasn't thinking. And they begin to think critically about their own lives and it helps them gain perspective on their lives. And we talk about, well, like the law of physics, to every action there's an equal and opposite reaction. To every action you take, there's a consequence. So you have to slow down and think about what are the consequences of this. This is something I took up on Zen meditation. Um, so Zen meditation, and one thing I'm learning is um, not not reacting when when someone when you when you sense conflict, you don't just react. You you listen and you be like that bamboo that bamboo tree, which the, the roots go very deep and the wood is so strong, termites can eat that bend, bend, bend with the wind, but never break, never break, never break. I talk about that with the youth and get them to think critically about their lives. So they do begin to, um, I always say, you know, it, if you spend almost your life regretting what you did, you're not going to actually be present in life, but they do get to that place after they see their films. Alex, how much are you sacrificing your own Hollywood goals to be so heavily involved with FYI films, or did you never have Hollywood, quote unquote, Hollywood goals? Um, yeah, I, I have goals that are in alignment with what, how Hollywood perceives success, but um, I don't feel like I'm sacrificing anything because I feel like this is my organic journey to being a filmmaker. Um, so I went to USC where we were very much taught a Hollywood way of filmmaking, you know, mise-en-scene, master shot, medium close-up, close-up, ECU, cutaway, you know? And um, in working with the youth, they're very informal. Like they don't like to lock the camera down on the tripod because they are locked up. They, they're very inventive. Like one day I came to the camp and they attached um, three bungee cords on each side of the camera and said, hey, Munoz, look, it's a bungee camp. And the camera's <laughs> moving. And um, they're very inventive. And so the way I was taught filmmaking was to take a very stately, formal Hollywood approach. The youth, in working with the youth, they liberated me from that. And I become more radical in my approach to storytelling through cinema. Um, I crossed the line. We told never cross the sagittal plane. Well, I do all the time now because the youth emboldened me. So I feel like my work with them is a necessary part of my journey. I feel like my work as a filmmaker is informed by my interactions and my making films with them. The other thing they like is they don't like um, having to memorize lines and repeat lines because it's too robotic for them. So before we shoot a scene with them, I'll say, this is what's happening in the scene. You want her to agree to date you. And you are saying, no, that is my sister. You're not dating her. You don't want it. And I just 
freestyle it in free improv. So it's made me a little bit more relaxed. Uh, I use improvisation a lot. I didn't before I started working with this population. I'm more relaxed um, and, 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 and less formal. And it's interesting because when I, when I place um, Sony Pictures Entertainment, they um, support us and they give us cameras. And when we give cameras to the youth, um, the first thing they do is they point cameras back at the surveillance cam saying, I see you. You're watching me, but I'm watching you watch me. You know, they take control of the apparatus and they turn the tables. But when they're filming, they'll, I'll say, go to what interests you. They'll go to where the emotion is. Like if there's a scene between a son and an actress who's the mother crying, they'll go into the teardrop going down the mother's eye. And it's a very organic approach. They go to where they feel the, the emotional power is. What, what is interesting in the scene? Oh, the mother really feels bad that she wasn't the mother she should have been the first 14 years of his life. And it's, it's a necessary part. They're making me a better filmmaker. My work with them informs my path. So my next project, it's a feature film called Make the Moon. It was developed at Sundance years ago. And um, it's based on my, my twin brother and I growing up in San Jose. And it focuses on a mother um, who has um, two sons that are mixed race. I also have a sister and a brother, but I'm focusing on my twin brother and I for this. But in this film, there are three young people that really impress me as actors. Uh, one is a young woman from the Ute Mountain Ute tribe. Two others are from LA. They're in the film. I'm casting them. Then there's six other youth that are gonna work on the film and I'm gonna pay them and they're gonna learn what it's like to be on an independent film set and they're gonna to continue to develop their skills as filmmakers. So this is in alignment with both. Um, I am going after my Hollywood goal, making this feature film, but I'm also engaging formerly incarcerated youth. So I'm combining the two and my dream is to, I'm currently working on a plan. I'd like to open up a film academy in the next three to five years and the film academy would be kind of like the homeboy industries of filmmaking. Take ex-gang members, youth who have been affected by the foster care system, youth affected by the juvenile justice system. Not only train them to work on, on music, video, commercial, or TV sets or movie sets, but to create, develop, and make their own content. Wow. Because they have a different take on things. So to me, the, the real exciting stuff is happening in the margins. They're not part of mainstream media. They're not part of mainstream society. They have their own secret code of language of how to tell a story with film. They don't do the master shot, medium close-up, close-up, easy. They go, oh, just get the shot. Get the fucking shot. Get the shot of her crying. Let's move on, you know? Um, and they, they love the, they use their own language to, to um, take ownership, like a slate. They don't call a slate a slate. They call it a shield. And I asked this kid, Jimmy, why do you call it a shield? Oh, in case bullets come through, it could dodge the bullets. Um, a company move, when you move the, the cast and the crew, they call it in trans. That's when a youth is being transported from a correctional facility to the court to go oh, to a hearing. Okay. Um, they don't see, say quiet on the set. They, said, they say quiet in the ghetto or quiet on the barrio. And they also said, don't say it's MOS, just say it's NFS, no friggin' sound. So they, they come up with their own vernacular and own language to allow them to take ownership. But it's this very informal, radical approach to 
filmmaking that inspires me and informs me. So they're actually helping me unlearn what USC taught me, which is very formal Hollywood. Just because you're being taught that doesn't mean that's the only way to make films. So my films, I feel now, are more um, alive and more expressive because I let go of some of that old school training, you know? They're very radical with the camera. They do things like turn it upside down and do cartwheels with it whilst there's a chase scene. And it's that type of approach that, that informs my current approach to filmmaking. Just like you said that some of the quote unquote, not worst students, but maybe most arms crossed resistant turn out to be some of the best. Do you think that's the same in quote traditional film schools? That some of the worst students maybe you know, in the back, eh, who is this? And then actually they turn out to be the best. Yeah. Did you know, do you know the story about Jim Morrison at USC? Sort of. Um, yeah. Yeah. He Go did, he did two films and people said, you have no, you don't have one creative molecule in your body. What are you doing here? And he was making some, I actually saw two of the films. They were in the USC archive and they're really, really interesting. And of course he went on to be in the doors, right. but, um, um, you know, I, I went to a film school that was very entrenched in, you know, traditional, conventional Hollywood film storytelling. And what I'm trying to express is that that's good. It's important to know that. But the youth offer a different approach to filmmaking, which I find much more exciting and much more real and gets audiences to react more. You know, they also don't believe in these unrealistic, fake, they call it fake ass, delusional endings where everything's fine. Because sometimes everything doesn't end fine, but you keep going. One of my students, um, Fila, said, you know, sometimes things don't end well, but maybe the next situation will end well. And you just hope that things end well. And you, you celebrate it when stories end well. And when they don't end well, you think about what happened and you learn from it and you grow from it and you move on. So in the films we do, they're not all these, you know, neatly tied up endings because that's not the way life is, right? It's no. not. Sometimes things don't become resolved. No, they don't. You might have a fallout with a cousin or a family member and that you may spend the rest of your life going back and forth thinking that it's going to get there, but it doesn't. That's what life is. Us trying to love and be loved and also pay the bills and feed ourselves and experience warmth and joy, right? And go they to the, yeah, go to the Lemley as much as you can. Yeah, it's yeah. great movies. Yeah. yeah. And by the way, the Lemley didn't pay us to say that, but yeah, <laughs> they do have some great movies. And one, the beauty of art house cinema is that oftentimes things don't always. There's an ambiguous ending, or, or it's not always perfect. Whereas other theaters it might be more neatly tied up, and I can see how they would relate to that. There's a film. Two Latino youths made a film called Family Problems, and um, it was a young Latino man who made a film about his mother who was. Um, what they called a glasshead addicted to crystal meth. And um, one of the boys, Julio, said, Hey, Munoz, this film is about Alan's mom, but he doesn't want you to know, but don't say anything. I said, Okay, I won't. So the next day, Alan came up to me and said, Hey, Munoz, this film about this mother who's like, addicted to meth, that's about Julio's mom, but he doesn't want you to know. Well, both their mothers were addicted to, to meth. And so we made this film. And in the film, the boy is begging the mother to go into rehab. He finally gets the courage to say, mom, please go into rehab. And she does go to rehab in the film. So both boys invited their mothers to the film. And I said, if you invite your mothers to this film, 
it's really unfair if you don't tell them what the film is about. You have to tell them because they might experience shame. They might experience rage, humiliation or anger. We cannot drop a bomb on your moms. We have to let them know. So I called um, their mothers and the boys were on the phone with me. I said, look, um, this is what the film is about. Um, are you comfortable seeing a film about a young boy who wants his mom to go into rehab? Both agreed. They wanted to watch the film. Both went. This is at the Sony Theaters. I saw the film, broke down into tears. Within 48 hours, both mothers were in rehab. Oh, wow. Because it took a film made by their sons, and they saw their son saying, Mama, Mama, I need you, Mama, I need you. You need to stop using and you need to go to rehab. I love you no matter what, but I need you in my life. I need a mom. So the film is not only affect the individual, but also the family and the community. And so even things like that, it, the films were so real. So my demand for authentic representation is much more pronounced because of my students. I don't like fake stuff. This has no resonance, you know? Can you give us five filmmaking tips for anyone who wants to make a movie? First of all, have, have a good screenplay. That's the most important thing. Have a good screenplay. Uh, number two, uh, make sure you have the resources to make the film. Don't rush into making the film unless you have the resources to pay for the, the camera equipment, the locations and personnel. Um, the third one is have a really good producer who knows what they are doing and be very, very selective in who you hire. So um, have a good script, um, have the resources to make the film, hire a really, really good producer, be polite and respectful and grateful to every crew member and cast member. Very, very, very important. And one way you can show gratitude is by feeding people well, keep, keep the morale up. And um, number five, um, be open to um, suggestions if an actor I did a film with Rena Owen, a really great actress from um, Once Were Warriors, and um, she's on another plane. I mean, her her acting is she's she's not it's not Rena Owen, it's the character. It's it's amazing, and so I would block things out, and she would say, "Well, I was thinking Omar would do it this way." And I said, "Yes, you're right. Let's do it. You have to be open. Don't." Let your ego get in the way of the process because that will really mess you up. If you're working with an actress that has been acting like for 30, 40 years and you've been directing for five years, listen to that actress. So be open to taking guidance or suggestions because it will make your film better. What was the biggest mistake you made in the beginning on a film set? Oh, so I directed a, a music video for a company called Oil Factory and um, I got assigned a cinematographer. I didn't get to pick him. And um, I would ask him to um, do something and he wouldn't do it. And he just, I would say, shoot it this way and he would shoot it another way. And the mistake I made was I didn't stand up for my vision. I said, well, I guess this is what I have to do. I was just out of film school. I'm like, oh, I guess, oh, he's an ass. I guess sometimes you have to work with asses. But, um, the music video did not end up being a good video. Why? Because he had no interest in executing my vision. And I don't know what this guy was about, but the mistake I made was not standing up for my vision. 
in front of everybody. I was too shy about it, you know. Um, and I'll never make that. I'll never make that mistake again. And the same thing. Um, well, I won't talk about that. But you have to defend your vision. You must defend your vision. And if there's someone that it's not helping you execute the vision, cut them off. Because the, the video was a nightmare. But I learned from it. I, that will never happen again. What has contributed to your success so far? Whether it's watching something else, someone else, seeing how they work, liking their style, making mistakes, learning from them, belief in yourself, meditation. What do you think has kept you, I mean, you've been doing this, I'm sorry, with FYI, 17 yeah. years? Yeah, okay. 15 years. 15 years? Yeah. And you'd been making films previously. You went to film school. You went to two film schools, right? right. No, I went to one, USC. Oh, USC, okay. Yeah. What do you think's contributed to you staying in the game? Because not everybody stays with this. Some people could make one film, they go to Sundance, they win an award, and then either they can't find funding for the next project and they walk away, or they get tired of it. It's a lot of work. You're going to get beat up. I think it's um, in, in my course of working with incarcerated youth, um, They've taught me the, the power of storytelling. It's really, really, really powerful. You know, just the story, for instance, of, so a young black man who was one of my students while he was at Cam Gonzalez made a film about him going home and his fear about his father rejecting him again. His father always rejected him, right? So, he made a film about this young black man who goes home and the mother is trying to make everything fine, but the father says, get out of here, I don't want you in this house. You're a juvenile delinquent. I don't want you here. And I want nothing to do with you. So this protagonist has to go through being rejected yet again by his father, right? So this, is, we, this was after the, the film I talked about, about the mother who was, had uh, substance abuse issues, right? And so um, we invited the family to see the film, and I told Antoine, I said, you, gotta, you have to take a dead what the film is about because it could make him really ashamed and uncomfortable. You can't, you can't just do this to your dad. So I talked to the dad, explained what it was. He said, yeah, yeah, whatever. I'm just, I don't even want to go. I'm just going because my wife wants me to go. So he went and he saw this very tearful film about a young boy who just would do anything, anything to be accepted and loved by his father. The father was in tears. And I realized this is the power of film, like, but what's, what's more beautiful about the story is that um, uh, the mother called me a week later and they went to family therapy to talk about this stuff. So, so this is how authentic storytelling can lead to healing. Very interested in doing what I can to contribute to the well-being of, of humans, whether they're in Angola or Japan or the project itself. Film has that power. That the father and the son began a dialogue about how that relationship could be healed and repaired, all because he came up with this idea. So what keeps me going is stories like this, seeing how films and stories impact and heal people. That's what keeps me going. Have you ever wanted to give up? <laughs> yes, when they pulled the plug on my film <laughs> in LA County probation, I was like, 
wow, I just had all these dark thoughts, but my alumni, my alum called me, you know, from Mexico saying, I, I got deported, but I'm teaching filmmaking to incarcerated youth. And that kept me going again. So see, they made, maybe I've lifted them when I'm, I'm with them, but they call me out of the blue sometimes and they lift me. Imagine that. So, and Adrian getting me to Stevie Wonder, I was like, oh, I'm never going to make this film. So there's an exchange. Yes, I'm teaching them about filmmaking, teaching them to think critically about their lives, but they're teaching me too. They're emboldening me. They're giving me permission to go outside of what I learned at USC, get more radical, and tell stories that have power because they're authentic. Tell, tell, tell stories that will hopefully challenge people to, to find a place of healing. You know, that's what keeps me going because the impact powerful stories have on individuals. You've written a script that you said was at Sundance. You were working on it at one of the labs. Can you talk about that? Yeah, it's, it's Make the Moon and it's about a, um, it's semi-autobiographical, but it's about a, a, a mother, I'm mixed race, my mother is Caucasian, and uh, it's about a, a single mom who's Caucasian. She has two, she has identical twin sons and the father was not white and um, she loves one twin. She loves him because he's good. I'm burning my own spot here. He's good in the arts. He's good at sports. He, he's very communicative. She loves him. She feels that he is going to be the first one in the family to go to college. The other son is involved in gangs, smoking weed, getting girls pregnant and dropping, you know, not showing up to school. Um, the one that she really loves ends up tragically dying in an accident. And the surviving twin, she forces him to become the twin she loves. She said, you be your brother, then I can love you. But I'm not doing that. It's a, it's a film about grief and about broken relationships. So it's intense. You wrote it years ago? Yeah, I wrote it um, about nine years ago. And I, I've avoided it because it's too close to home. But um, I'm in a place now because I talked about my um, experience working with the Ute Mountain Ute Tribe and these very truthful conversations about our mortality. Um, um, and my father was diagnosed with colon cancer um, two years ago. I went home on Christmas Eve and they had to take 90% of his calling out. And uh, I um, had to change his dressing. So he had an incision from his belly button up here and I had to reach in. And that too had a, I started thinking, I don't know, I don't know, I'm not ready to lose my dad. Like, I don't want, my, even though I don't see things the way my parents do, I don't want to lose my parents yet. And I don't want to leave this place yet. But I, facing the, Possibility of my father dying made me think of my own mortality. Like, I gotta tell these stories. I gotta get this film done and get out of my phobic vortex about dealing with the truth and get this thing done. So, as painful as it is, I was dwelling on how hard it is, but now I'm looking at how therapeutic it is. I'm gonna be liberated when I tell the story because releasing a story to the universe can be very, very, you know, uh, liberating. So I'm at a place now where I'm ready to get it done. As a matter of fact, I'm going to um, one of my funders to get a check for half the amount of the budget. 
So wow. I'm ready to do the film. And I'm glad I haven't done the film yet because if I did the film earlier, it would lack truth and power because of what I went through. And I just think that you have to trust the continuum. And a lot of artists get into these dark spaces when we're not working, and we're not on the set, or we're not writing, or we don't have a deadline. Um, I look at that time. Um, my friend Alex Dorsey shared something with me. She said, in those in-between moments where you have downtime, you are preparing your chalice for future wine. That's a very healthy way of looking at it, right? You are preparing your chalice for future wine. When did you start writing Make the Moon? Oh, I started writing Make the Moon in high school. <laughs> um, I knew I would be telling a, a very personal story. It's a kind of a coming of age story. Um, the film is basically about a mother and son who, no matter how hard they try, they can't seem to love one another. And as painful as that is, it's true. It sometimes happens between child and parent. Um, in the end of the film, there is definitely a sign of hope, but I'm not gonna have some bullshit ending and have mother and son wrap their arms around each other. Oh, I've always loved you, I'm sorry. It's just... So it's, it's about a mother and son who are locked in grief, which complicates their desire to really truly love each other. And no matter how hard they try, the harder they try to love each other, the farther apart they get. That's how loaded it is, you know, with family sometimes. And so the script you've been working on for years, when did you actually get it in like first draft, second draft, and a beyond stage? And how was that? I have like 18 different versions, and one version was 198 pages long. And um, so I had to step away from it. Um, I, I have so many different drafts, but now I'm at a draft that's 112 pages. And that's, a, that's, that's what I want to go with. I want to go with a 112-minute film. And will you shoot it here in LA? Yes. I was going to shoot it in San Jose. The original title was Do You Know the Way to San Jose? But um, the texture in LA, the locations, the, the tension that we talked about, that's all here. Um, I've done a lot of research. Um, I'm actually breaking I'm dividing LA into three different realms, and this is probably informed by my experience with the Mountain U-Trap. There's the, the Unterwelt, the underworld. There's the surface world, right, the streets. And then there's the Überwelt, the overworld. So there's three different realms to LA. So it's kind of spiritual because the people who are like, you know, doing naughty things and doing illegal stuff that hide underground, that's the dark underworld. And then the surface world, which most of us are, are in, and then the overworld, which is more the superior beings. There's a character named Heike. She lives in a treehouse, and the birds and the butterflies are always around her because she's of the overworld. Um, so LA, that was a big choice to, to um, have it take place in LA. The other thing I worry about is it's a, it's a um, it's the type of film that some people may be upset by because I choose to be real. And I don't, and there's some really um, radical scenes that might elicit some very negative reactions, especially people from the Christian right. And I don't want my family to be mistreated or, or um, 
disrespected because a member of their family made this film. I'm doing it to protect my family. It's not a faith-based film, right? No, it's Quote-unquote faith, okay. No. But it's, there, there's um, uh, spirituality questions? Yes. Okay. That doesn't conform to, you know, I was born and raised Catholic, definitely. It's not anti-Catholic, it's just, it's a different way of, this young man, this protagonist, has a different way of looking at things and he meets a woman named Heike who helps him understand relationships and, and families and it's otherworldly, it's just. You speak German? I speak German, yeah. Where did you learn German? Ich habe Deutsch gelernt in Hochschule in 8. Uni. I learned to speak in high school and college and I studied in, in Berlin, yeah. But I. Oh, you went to Berlin, okay. Yeah, the last time I was in Berlin, I was directing a show and um, I meant to tell an actress, du musst die um, Kuli abbringen. I, I meant to say, please carry the pen when you end the scene. I said, please bring me your ass. <laughs> no. I meant to order like, we were offered lunch and I meant to say, I'd like to order chicken, which is, ich möchte ein Stück Hähnchen bestellen. I said, ich möchte ein Stück Hühnchen bestellen. I said, I'd like to order a little puppy to eat. Oh no. So I think they just hire me because I make them laugh. <laughs> What's your favorite camera to shoot with? Well, I, the Alexa, the new Alexa. Actually, I haven't shot with it yet, but I want to shoot with it because <laughs> I've seen uh, DPs, um, I've seen their dailies, and I've been I love the red camera. I love the red. That was my favorite camera, but I'm going to be shooting uh, with the Alexa for my feature, and I'm looking forward to that. Oh, you've already kind of planned that? For yeah. You? Okay, wow. And you'll be renting it? Yes. Oh, okay. Do you have like a place you go to? You don't have to name it, but that you rent yeah. a lot of your stuff? Yeah, I have a really good DP. I've been working with him. It's a Francisco Bugarelli. He's been shooting for me for about 12 years now. So we have a really good rapport and I let him do all the, you know, tell him what camera you want and he goes out and gets it. What is important um, for the director-DP relationship? What, what do you think? Because, you know, there are people, they just have their team. What is that magic that happens? I think um, it's uh, there has to be a, a space where you co-share a similar sensibility and a similar understanding of what cinema is in terms of using um, cinematography to define tone and feel and even rhythm and my suggestion to filmmakers out there is if you are going to go with a DP, get to know that DP. Take him out to lunch, take him out to coffee, take him to happy hour, take him to dinner, hang out with him and see where his sensibilities are. See what interests him in terms of, you know, shooting images that when put to, assembled together make a story. you got to make sure that you have a common language and you have a common understanding of each other's sensibilities. Look, like that music video I did for Oil Factory, the DP didn't listen to me. He was much older than me. He just thought I was some new kid, which I was, and just did whatever he wanted and rebelled against anything I wanted him to do. There was no meeting between us. So you've got to, what really helps is if, if you have similar favorite films, that helps a lot. I always ask people, what films do you like? Uh, from, a from a cinematographer's point of view, tell me what films you really, really like. So. Make sure there's a lot of common ground between you and the cinematographer you work, you work with. What's been the easiest year you've had as a filmmaker? And then what's been your toughest year? Yeah, I think my easiest year was um, 
It was uh, 2000 when I, I booked my first film, uh, Riot, uh, the Showtime film. Um, I was brought in under tragic, tragic circumstances. The guy who wrote it was um, Joseph Vasquez, and he, he, he passed away, and they were looking for a new director, and it turns out most of the producers went to USC, and there was buzz about my, my thesis film called Por Vida. And um, I mean, I did my first movie right when I got out of film school, and then I got a commercial agent, and I was doing commercials, and um, my other film got into Sundance. It was such a year. And yes, there is some um, happenstance in um, luck. I, I don't like to call it luck because someone died, but a, a, a writer director passed away that needed someone to direct a segment. I had to come in and change it because the way he wrote it, he's from New York. He's a, a brilliant uh, writer director from New York, New York, and I had to make it more LA. But that was a, I was thinking, wow, I just, how did this happen? I'm directing a film for Showtime and I just got out of film school. Is this really happening? And then I was going to Berlin and going to all these film festivals. So, but, but the point of ignition was me getting that Showtime movie. And then the worst year was probably the year I did, I don't even like looking at the film because the producers um, were not, um, honest. They cut out eight core scenes and they said, we're going to shoot these scenes in um, LA. And I said, yeah, let's shoot the scenes because if we don't shoot these eight scenes, the story won't make sense. So we wrapped the film, we got to LA and they said, we're not shooting those scenes. They never planned to shoot the scenes. And they did shoot some additional new scenes. And I found out and um, I told them, I said, you can't do this on DGA. And um, I will report this to the union. And my DP said he's, he would report it also to his union. And they said, well, if you go to the union, we'll just drag your name through the mud. I said, go ahead, nothing's gonna come up. So I had to go to my union and, and fight just to shoot some of the new scenes. And I almost reached the point of surrender where I said to myself, I worked really hard to get into USC and I worked really hard to, to come up with the money to pay for my master, to get my master's degree. Why am I doing this? Why am I gonna spend six months of my life on a film only to have it re-edited and have stuff filmed behind my back? This is BS. But what I did instead is instead of, I just refused to stand under the banner called victim. Like I'm gonna learn from this and now I'm a fiercely independent filmmaker. I gotta have final cut. And the films that have done well for me, my most award-winning films are films where I had the final say in the creative cut because I know what I want and I'm clear about my vision. But it was a bad year because um, I wanted to claim the Alan Smithy clause, which is if you don't like a film and it, it, if it deviates too much from your vision, you don't have to have your name on it. But if I took one name off of it, I would lose all the residuals and I needed the money. So, um, not only did the film not do well, it didn't bomb, it just was very, very lukewarm. And then I kind of got a little blacklisted for running to the union and people were, I became a distant outpost, like no one wants to really touch me. They were saying this guy ran to the DJ like a little baby and people didn't really want to talk to me or hire me. And that was a very tough year for me. But I recovered and you know, we survive, we survive and we overcome and we keep going. My auntie used to say, onward ever, keep going.
There's a Japanese proverb. It's um, fall down eight times, get up nine times. I have that above my wall, above my desk in my office. Why do people fail in Hollywood? I actually think more people fail in Hollywood than, than succeed because it's, it's a game. And what people don't understand is the game changes every day. Um, you have to know how the machine works. And if you don't know how the machine works, you're not going to get your work out there and you will not have um, doors opening for your success. And um, I think also some people stumble and fail because um, they haven't taken the time to develop their craft as storytellers and filmmakers. You really have to have it down. You really have to know craft. You've got to know where to put the camera, what lens to use, what is the lighting, what is the rhythm, tempo, and pacing, what is being revealed in the scene, where is the climax, where is the point of ignition, where is the aftermath, where does it pick up again, where does it end. You have to know these things, otherwise you're going to have a really hard time making a successful film. It's craft, 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 craft. And the best way to learn filmmaking is go out and make films. Every time you make a film, you learn. I'm still learning. I feel like I just scratched the surface in terms of what, it is, what is it to make a good film. I like what you say about um, the rules change. Hadn't really thought of that. That's really interesting. So how does somebody then start to know what the rules are if no one's telling you? But they're changing. You have to circulate and you have to read the trades. You have to be informed. You have to gather intelligence. Um, I'm not going to mention names, but there's an actor who recently fell from grace. And um, he was attached to a project of mine. That project is now gone because his fall was so dark and tragic and severe and toxic that so the game changed from my relationship with this actor because of what happened. It, things are changing, you know, every day. Um, I pitched a, a series to a network that was ready to be greenlit, and the day we were supposed to sign the papers, uh, the channel hired a new person to, to take over, and this new person said, I'm not greenlighting any project that my predecessor greenlit, so I'm sorry, you're gonna have to pitch this to someone else. Changes. Had another TV show where I had two very famous showrunners. A week before we were supposed to go um, sign the deal, one of them got named to run a network. But you don't cry and, and weep about these things. You go, okay, this wasn't meant to be. Let's keep going. Keep going. It changes every day. It changes, and you have to be informed. You have to gather intelligence and talk to people in the industry and read the trades. So besides this interview, what else are you doing for your filmmaking career today? Oh, well, like today, um, it's... Um, so I think that, you know, when you're making a film, my rule is that if you're not laughing or joking around on my film set, you can't work on my set because when people are relaxed, um, it's like, I don't know if you ever watched basketball, but Michael Jordan, um, when he had the ball and there was like three seconds left and he knew he had to make a jump shot, his tongue would hang out. And he explained in his book that my, if my tongue is hanging out of my mouth, that means my body is relaxed. That means when my brain says make the shot, my body will do what the brain signal is sending. But if I'm uptight, I can't. So I shoot 
films every day on Instagram. Like today, it's my manager's birthday, Jane Kell. Oh, nice. And um, when the sun's at the right lighting, um, I asked two other clients of hers to come and join me, and we're gonna make we're gonna make the short film to wish her happy birthday. It's still filmmaking. Oh, that's sweet. And I'm always if I see something that interests me, and I have a moment, I'll shoot a film. And here's another thing of advice: the new director's reel is Instagram. Uh, six of the last eight jobs I got were because people saw my work on Instagram. Get your work out there. It's not Facebook. It's not a director's reel in the link. It's not a director's reel on a DVD. People are looking at Instagram. I know a lot of actors who get work through Instagram too. Everyone is looking at Instagram because it's very visual. So I make little short films. So you're either uploading your video or you're just filming it with the camera to the Instagram video. Yeah, part. and okay. I, um, I try to, because um, they can't be more than 60 seconds, so I try not to, I think editing is important. You know, Alfred Hitchcock did rope and it had like zero editing, but at the end he said, film must be cut. He's like, he didn't want to do it again because it was good. But if you really want to um, effectively tell a story, you're going to have to edit. So for these films I do, I usually have one or two edits because they have to be under 60 seconds. But you could tell a story in 60 seconds if you, if you, if you think it through. So. Yes, I'm not getting paid. I'm not on a set with a bunch of people, but I'm still directing, I'm still filmmaking. So I'm gonna be doing a short film like two hours from now in downtown LA for my manager. Who's the best person you've ever worked with in Hollywood? That's a, that's a good question. It's um, also loaded for me, but I'm gonna, if you allow me to rephrase it. Sure. So I will share with you the person who most challenged me to become a better director. So uh, I directed a film called Spout, which is this artsy vampire film starring Rena Owen, who's currently on Siren. It's a great series about um, you know mermaids, and she was she gave an unforgettable performance, unforgettable performance in Once Were Warriors. And um, the reason why she challenged me to um, the reason why my working with her was really transformative is that. She taught me the importance of preparation. Like I'm talking about dogged preparation. I'm talking about like really preparing every line of dialogue. And she also taught me what good acting is. I really didn't know what good acting was until I, I met her and it's, it, it's, it's magic. And I only had to, um, I only gave her direction three times because we were talking about what was going on in the scene and she would deliver. And there were only three times in the course of this film where I said, oh, can you try it this way? And she said, yeah, that sounds good. She did it and it worked. But what she taught me was this. When you have an actor or actress who has given you what, what you want, stay out of the way. Give them that space to, to share their gifts with your audience. Give them space. Let them play. Give them the freedom. Don't be directing people like a traffic cop. Give them the freedom to shine and give them their space. And let them make choices. Let them make radical choices. And let them play. Randa taught me this stuff. She taught me to be more relaxed and she told me to trust my intuition and trust my gut. And ever since working with her, I'm much more relaxed on set, but I'm also more demanding of my actors.
In what way? I push them more. I, I push them more where I'm not satisfied with a good performance. I want a great performance. And I used to coach football. I coached football, middle school football. And my job being a football coach was getting the best performance out of my football players. I had to do that same thing when I'm on the set. I got, I got, I, I need my actors to achieve something they never thought was manageable as an actress or actor. Rana taught me that. She, I had a ceiling for what my expectations were for my films and for, especially for my performances. Rana said that ceiling is way too low, Alex. Get rid of it. This, we can go much higher together if we relax and go by our instincts and our guts and we don't have anxiety <laughs> and we prepare. Because you know, people have anxiety when they do not prepare. If you looked at the debates the other night, I'm not gonna mention names, but there were certain candidates that were not prepared and they had anxiety and they were stumbling and they weren't finishing lines. Preparation is everything. It's another thing Rena Owen taught me. So I'm a lot more dogged and a lot more disciplined of a director because of Rena Owen. Thank you, Rena. Do this, Maasi, Rena.